Mid Mornings with Phil Rowe. About the uh, fresh wind in our sales project. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Burwell Mill and Museum's £420,000 project, currently uh, generously funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund. And the project aims to restore the Grade 2 listed four-storey tower mill built around about 1820 into working order so its milling machinery using sails and wind power can be accessed by the public. Alongside the restoration works will be a reinterpretation of the museum to integrate the windmill into the displays and a volunteer programme to involve local people and create new activities, events and learning resources to appeal to children families and others. Joining me in the studio this afternoon, Anne Wise, who's a volunteer coordinator on the project. Welcome. It's not your first time at uh, Cambridge 105. I came uh, a few months ago to recruit volunteers for Burwell. And did it did it help? Did it happen? Uh, well, how many volunteers, I guess, we should start by asking you? Have you got working with you as a team on this project? We started the project last year, last October, and there was the existing 30 volunteers and my job in the two-and-a-half-year two project is to get at least another 25. So far in the last 12 months, we've got about 32 new volunteers to join the project, which that's, is fantastic. That's pretty impressive. I, many years ago, worked on Fallborn Windmill, which is a, a post mill that sits up in a very... <laughs> there's very few hills around here. But there is a small one near the village of Fulborn, if you head from Cambridge past the, the Fulborn Hospital and into the village, it used to be hard work on the bicycle. But I used to, I went to go down and replacing weatherboards and start to try and get some of the millstones working again, yeah. some of the machine. It was great fun, and I actually learned an awful lot, and the mechanical engineering skills as well. So the volunteers you have, I mean, are they, I'm sure they're not a hodgepodge bunch. You obviously have people, I guess, who have got some good skills that know a bit about structural engineering architecture, people that can sort of safely and competently work on the project? Well, the opportunities that we're offering volunteers, some are very skilled jobs to do with construction and building, others to do with education, there's collection management roles, events, marketing opportunities, oral history. So it's quite diverse opportunities that we're offering but we've had for the last year a team of volunteers who we called the shutter team who literally have remade over 190 shutters to go on the sails that would go back onto the windmill these are like these are wooden panels aren't they that each sail has when the shutters are taken off of course the sails won't turn because they can't take uh, wind resistance and drag Yes, I worked on shutters That's as right. well. Of course, being made of wood, I guess a lot of them have got into quite a poor, rotted condition. Well, initially, we thought that the volunteers would just be restoring the shutters. But once the sails came down and the shutters came off, we realised that the wood was completely rotten all the way through. So their task went global, where they had to not just make the new sails but work out how they fitted together the new fixtures that they needed, the whole process of making these wooden sows. There's no blueprint. I was going to say to you, were there drawings, something they could refer to or talk to, I don't know, an expert historian about windmills that could They've help? been working with a consultant, but for this particular windmill and the, the sows, the, there wasn't anything. So they've had to take the old ones apart and work out how they were put together, then look at the, the metal fittings and remake 
and some have been cast, others have been recycled. So they've actually taught themselves a whole load of new set skills, which yes. hopefully we can pass on to other windmill owners. And taking shutters off, I guess you can just use ropes and, and pulleys, but taking the sails off, now there's a whole different, uh, the weight and sheer vast size. Uh, you, you say you've taken the sails down, so have you used a crane to do that sort of work? The sails came down at the beginning of the year and there was uh, cranes, properly trained people to remove them. It was a very slow process throughout the day. And then the cap of the windmill also had to come down and the fan tail had to come down. That's a major dismantling. The cap, of course, you would explain, is a bit like, I suppose, the pen cap on a, on a pen. Yeah. It's the very top, isn't it? It's yes. the stub end, the top end, often a domed yes. end as well. So that's extraordinary. I mean, that must be really quite a weight. It was a, a fantastic achievement. Again, it was a crane involved and that cap and the fan tail came down in the beginning of the year as well. But the cap and fan tail have been remade and restored. They've been put back up in the last few weeks. Do you know that's quick in the terms of uh, wind, windmill restoration? It took us many years on the project we were working on. We were pretty impressed, and yes. hopefully the sales will go back up next month. That, Fingers that, crossed. That is very impressive indeed. So operational date? I mean, I wouldn't have asked you otherwise because I would have thought it would be so far down the line in the future. But when do you think we'll, we'll have some sales turning again? We hope the sales will go back, say, this month, November, I should say, with the shutters. Over the winter, they will work on the mechanical side of things. To so make they can sure stay in, inside, I presume, in, in, yes. in the winter months. You're not sort of 30 foot up a ladder or something on the, on the, on the weatherboards well, on the outside. They oh. might <laughs> keep the make, just make sure it's all OK. Yes. And we're aiming to reopen the windmill when we reopen for next year's season, which will be at Easter. That's amazing. Um, are you using any paid labour to do this as well? Do you have consultants or We architects? have a consultant. We have also a millwright and his team. But everybody else are volunteers yes. who are working on the windmill. The project team, there's three of us, we're all part-timers and we're all paid as part of the project. So we're the museum professionals, but everybody else is volunteers. So to find a millwright... How far did you have to search? It can't be many of those left, really. Or the people that be working in water mills as well as sail mills, presumably. There's, there's the specialists who do the water mills and the ones who do the windmills. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is a niche specialism. But you'll be amazed. There are specialists out there. And when they were putting the project together, they had to get the funding, they had to put the, the work out to tender. And we, we've got some wonderful people working on it who are very enthusiastic and also very supportive and encouraging of the volunteers, which is very, very important. And at the same time, the volunteers are building up relationships with neighbouring windmills as well. So there's a long-term support network being created. It's amazing, isn't it? I was listening to uh, Mandy Morton's show yesterday morning. She's my opposite number on a Tuesday, and she had actor David Suchet uh, on a pre-recorded interview as well. And he was talking about the marvellous people that have a passion for restoring old cars, old trains old windmills and, and he was saying it seems to be something very quintessential about the British mm. that we love heritage our industrial archaeology I mean here in Cambridge we have the Cambridge Museum of Technology and our steam pumping engines which are marvellous to go and see beautifully restored lovingly dedicated looked after and as mm. David Suchet said to Mandy Morton people will spend actually every last penny they've got mm. restoring and looking after these things with great pride 
So I'm sure, I mean, I had great pride when I was helping with the Fullbourne Windmill Project. And you, yeah. when you probably all step away next year, because you have to step back some distance, don't you? Yes. Really, to see the cap, the sails, all the way down the wind. I'm sure people will have great pride to be able to open the windmill and, and allow people to look around for the first time. It's very much going to be um, a community sense of pride because of the majority of the volunteers that we've got on board all live in the village and they rather like the idea. You know, some are granddads and some are young mm -hmm. dads. In the next 10, 20, 30 years, taking their families and going, I had to go at that. I've made a part of that. And it is, it is the, we recognise the craft and the, the skills that have gone into making windmills and farm machinery and vintage vehicles. And, and we like to preserve that in this country. There is that yes. want to get our hands dirty and, and keep things running. And it's a great hobby. It's a great diversion from, I don't know, nine to five office job. Get People your, find it very relaxing. Get your yeah. boiler suit on, get your great. dungarees on. Girls and boys alike. Yes. Uh, ladies, I guess, on the team as well, quite a few of them. We, we do, not actually working on the windmill side of things, though we did say to people, if you want to come along and paint the, the shutters, you're more than welcome. I remember that job. White, normally. <laughs> yes, <laughs> shiny white. And, and just yes. lots and lots of... Just, uh, for the listener, you can just imagine what shutters look like. They're a bit like, I suppose, cloche frames uh, on, on sort of a low-level glass house where you have to take those frames, those white frames, they're oblongs normally, aren't they? Yes, um, yeah. And each one, to paint one of those, you think, oh, yes, quick round with a brush. No, it takes hours and hours, doesn't it, to get it right. Undercoat, several layers, level, yes. layers against the weather. So and also can... preservative to make sure that these shutters will last a good 20, 30 years. So I it's can... a long-term thing. It's not a quick fix for this windmill. It's a long-term project. And whatever you put back, you want to put it back well so you don't have, you know, the weather is going to stay out of it for 30 years and it's going yes. to... Now, will it be milling? Will it actually be able to produce corn or, uh, or flour from the corn or and wheat? We will be able to demonstrate the, the milling, but unfortunately we won't be able to sell it. Health and safety. Oh, really? And food hygiene and that side of things. But we can demonstrate. Will there be too much grit in the flour, presumably? Yes. Uh, the millstones, so. presumably original. What what condition are the the stones in? Are they a bit very more? good condition. Yeah. It's it. The mechanism inside is in very good fix. It's just the external structure where it, the windmill is in Burwell. It is a very very windy area. Well, most places in Cambridgeshire yes. I'm discovering are very windy. <laughs> yes. But it's very exposed, so the outside had got into difficulties and it's a grade two listed building, so work had to be done, it couldn't be left. But once the sows are up, then they start fixing up the inside, putting in new interpretation panels, but also interactive corn querns and all that sort of thing. So people will be able to access the windmill. They'll be able to climb up, but if yes. they're not physically able to climb up, there will be sufficient information downstairs for them to enjoy. And hopefully that will encourage other people to get in, involved with the windmill uh, and get involved in volunteering at the museum. Normally a couple of stories as well to climb, aren't there? Fairly open ladders, but I guess health and safety people allow you to get away with that because, after all, that's how the thing was constructed. And yes. that's how the miller went up and down the, the various flights and floors of the windmill in the olden times. So I have to admit, I haven't been upstairs... <laughs> <laughs> the the ladder's a, a bit head too for, steep oh, for me. Not a head I'm a coward. Not a head for heights, and then, yeah. But children love going up. We yes. opened up the windmill for Heritage Open weekend. 
We opened up on a Sunday afternoon. And families were able to come in and explore the windmill while it's still in its rough state. And they just loved it. And hopefully that enthusiasm will continue once the windmill is open and looking wonderful. And will you be incorporating um, anti-lightning measures? Because one of the problems that windmills had, which actually closed the Fourbourne windmill, that in 1922 there was a lightning strike and that, that took it out and finished it off. It didn't burn down. Right. but it was damaged enough to uh, not be able to ever turn a wheel or a sail yes. again. At Burwell, have you sort of implemented uh, lightning conductors and things? They have, yes, and they are putting together a maintenance plan, so they actually will be looking after it and making sure it doesn't fall into um, decay like it did before, but also that we can keep it running, and that's a very important part of, of this project. But they're obviously, yes, they've, they've looked into the, the fact that, you know, lightning and thunder and wind and, and rain. And Is it copper-capped? Because some of the windmills years ago, the, the, the dome bit, the, the okay. sort of snub end on the top, the, the very sort of pinnacle of the, of the mill sometimes, was, were clad in copper years ago. It's wood. Ah, right. It's a be- it is a beautiful, beautiful dome. construction. Yes made out of wood yes. and in its own right it, it, when it was on the, gr- the ground before it went up it was a piece of scu- sculpture in its own right it was absolutely beautiful and presumably painted in a glorious white bright white colour white and the fan towers white so it looks like this beautiful well actually like a, uh, a, a Dalek like a, with a nice hat on I don't know I was going to describe a bride with a, wearing a lovely white veil but uh, I was thinking of it more eloquently like that so all of next year we'll be working on more family activities, interpretation, a new website, new events, more volunteers and then the three project team members. We leave on March 2015 and hopefully by that time the museum is sustainable and the volunteers will carry on. Sounds like it's going to be fantastic. Just time to uh, say if people want more information you can contact Karen Chancellor and her email address is education at burwellmuseum.org.uk that's education at Burwell Museum or one word.org.uk, or you can telephone 07714 That's 07714 Anne Wise, a project which is uh, fresh wind in our sails. She's the volunteer coordinator, and uh, when the uh, windmill is up and running, I certainly will be coming over to have a look. Excellent. Thanks very much for joining us. Afternoons with Matt Webb. And it's now half past two and I'm pleased to say that uh, joining me in the studio is Adam Catlin. He's a paramedic and a special constable with uh, Cambridgeshire Police and he's coming to talk about the work of the ambulance service as a whole, being a paramedic and uh, his work as a special constable. So uh, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. It's uh, it's good to have you in the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. No problem at all. And first of all, tell us a little bit about what you do. So you're a paramedic. Um, I work at the ambulance service frontline. Um, My actual title is an ECA. You get various grades, much like you do in a hospital. Um, but most of the time I'm out day and night on the ambulances um, responding to 999 calls um, across the county. Um, and that can be everything from slips and trips and falls to something perhaps a bit more urgent um, and, you know, everything in between. Are sort of incidents classed as, as, as severe or not severe and things yes, like absolutely. that? Yes, um, absolutely. Calls are graded um, between what used to be known as Category A call, which is immediately life-threatening. We try and get to those within about eight minutes is, is the target. Um, and then some of the less urgent calls, um, say category B's or C's, we, we aim for as fast as we can get there safely, um, but often within 19 minutes, you know, as, as fast as we can, um, depending on the instance itself. Because there's that golden hour, isn't there? Or the there golden is indeed, time. Yes. 
Um, and anything particularly um, trauma-related, you may have heard on various programmes and shows um, referred to as the Golden Hour. Um, that's something we've got. And, and the aim there is if someone has suffered a severe trauma um, or major medical event, is to get them from that event to within uh, theatre or the relevant department within 60 minutes of it occurring. So when you're out on patrol, are you as stationed somewhere then you actually have to go to a call or can you often be sort of on patrol uh, around Cambridge and then receive a call? A combination of both really. Um, we do operate out of ambulance stations, um, however throughout the day we'll be moved from various cover points. Um, the, the, the thought behind that being it's silly five ambulances being parked on the same ambulance station. Um, so you'll have one at the ambulance station, one at various cover points around the city, around, around the county even, so that if a call comes in, whether it's close to the ambulance service or indeed far away, um, the aim is there'll always be an ambulance fairly close to you. I mean, how many paramedics are there normally on duty at any one time? Is there quite a few across Cambridge here? Um, it depends entirely um, the time of year, day, night. Um, we've also got response cars as well. So across the county, it'd be fairly impossible to say. Um, but on the usual shift, uh, maybe four or five ambulances from a, um, a station such as Cambridge um, and a few cars as well. And uh, you've brought in a defibrillator unit. Now, this is because uh, I've got a bit of a personal connection with this, uh, as you know. Indeed. And um, Adam was actually the, uh, the the paramedic who actually turned up. He was actually a spe- uh, on duty as a special constable with Cambridgeshire Police and actually uh, restarted my stepfather's heart as he was suffering a uh, heart attack inside a- a- Asda supermarket. Now, that must have been a quite a testing experience for you to, to, go, to go to that sort of call. And Indeed. It must have been very difficult. Tell us a little bit about it. Um, well, I was as you mentioned, on um, duty with the police at the time. Um, and because of my medical training, I always carry my medical equipment with me just in case. Um, and we were passing um, down near the supermarket when we heard one of our colleagues shout up and say, oh, we've got a cardiac arrest um, in the store. Could we have an ambulance and some backup, please? Um, luckily, myself and my colleague, Ben Harridan, um, we were about half a mile away. Um, I shouted up on the radio and said, yep, I've got a defib. I'll be there in about 30 seconds. Um, and because you were literally down Coldham's Lane, weren't we you? We were, actually, yes. We were um, following someone down there at the time um, when we heard um, my colleague call up, um, spun round. So we, we were very lucky with the timing um, as to how close we were. So what's the first thing that you do when you attend uh, someone who's had a heart attack? What, what, what's your first thoughts, what you have to do? Um, usually, if patient's still conscious and they're having the early stages of a heart attack, it's making them comfortable, um, doing an ECG, looking at the heart and give them any medication to ease that, such as aspirin or GTN spray under the tongue. Um, if things have developed a bit further and they've gone into cardiac arrest, as indeed was the case with your stepfather, um, it's then a case of very promptly trying to get uh, early defibrillation, um, and in the meantime, and alongside that, would be um, what we know as CPR, chest compressions, um, and then some supplementary drugs as well, um, short-term and long-term in hospital for recovery. And you, you brought the unit in uh, with you. That this was actually the unit that actually did restart my stepfather's heart. Tell yes, us a little bit about this it. Um, this is what's called an automatic external defibrillator. Um, it's in a big yellow box. Indeed, isn't it? it is. The carry case um, in there is actually a, a small unit um, with two buttons. Child's play to use is an on-off button. Um, you then plug the pads into a, a shaped hole that you can't get it wrong. You stick the pad where the diagram says to stick it. And as you turn it on, it gives you voice prompts and tells you exactly what to do next and whether it is viable to deliver a shock to the heart 
um, which in your stepfather's case um, was indeed appropriate at the time. And uh, we, we see programmes on television like Casualty and we see people jump in the air after they've actually had the shock. Is that true to what happens in real life? I wouldn't say jump in the air, but um, the entire body will shock. Um, effectively, as with any muscle reflex, any electrical activity will form a spasm. Um, being an external defibrillator, we'll have a pad near the shoulder and one around the side of the patient. So any muscles between those two pads, including the heart, will suddenly contract. So you do get people who will suddenly shake and it, it looks like all their limbs are moving as well. And what's the survival rate normally after someone's been shocked as, as such? Depends really when that shock is delivered. Um, generally in the UK, um, there's an out, what we call out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival rate of about 2.5%. Um, as each minute passes from the event, your survival chances drop about 10%. Um, and because obviously usually some people will collapse in their home by the time people are found as a national average two and a half percent survival rate however if you can get that shocking in the first ideally immediately uh, but in the first few minutes we say the first eight minutes are critical because at that point you're then looking at about 20 percent which is quite low Um, but uh, you know on this occasion we were lucky it was possibly about two maximum of three minutes um, and uh, it worked exactly as we would have hoped. Yes, indeed. And uh, a number of supermarkets are now having these units fitted and having people train. Do you think that's a vital imp- of importance in, in today's society? I do indeed. Um, with these days, there's so many fire regulations. You have to have X amount of fire extinguishers and exits and all of these in the building. And you, by law, you don't have to have any defibs. However, far, far more people die of a cardiac arrest at work or out in public from heart attacks, cardiac arrests than they do indeed from any fires. Um, so it's my personal belief, whether that's the belief of um, other professionals or the service itself, um, is that, yes, it's as vital, if not more vital, than all these stringent fire regulations you have. And uh, also, moving on to things, obviously we had my stepdad who's in hospital. One, I think it was your, one of your colleagues who dealt with our very own Neil Whiteside, who's uh, had a bit of an accident on his motorcycle a couple of weeks so ago. So I understand. And uh, suffered, uh, I think it's either fractured pelvis or something like that. When you go out to people who've had, like, broken arms and things, what do you normally do to sort of cater for them? Um, one of the main things at that point is pain relief. Um, it's, it's very rare that a, a fracture um, will be life immediately life-threatening. So we don't want to pick them up, scoot them off, cart them off to hospital, cause them more discomfort than they need. Um, so usually it's uh, pain relief initially and then looking at supporting the fracture, whether it's something isolated like an arm or something a bit more internal such as a pelvis, which is quite a major fracture and can be dangerous. Um, usually it's supporting that um, and keeping it as stable as possible until they can be treated at hospital. And when you sort of travel around, you must carry a whole plethora of things in your in your mobile Indeed, ambulance. Yes. What do you normally carry as standard? Um, gosh, we carry all sorts of things. We carry um, obviously all of our medical drugs, um, which are just a myriad and you could talk about for hours. Um, we then carry spinal boards um, for people who have uh, any back, neck or head injuries. Um, we've got stretchers that snap apart, so if we need to scoop someone off the floor, we've got one especially for that. Uh, we've then got um, fracture splints, maternity kits, burns, gels, um, you name it, we can pretty much cater for it. Um, generally, the hardest thing to find on an ambulance is actually a plaster. Really? Um, Crikey. Anything above that is it's pretty much there. And uh, you're also a special constable with Cambridge Police. Now, I've got a bit of a connection with this as well. I used to be a special constable. And um, when you're sort of out on duty with, with specials, do you, do you find that your, your paramedic side comes into things when you sort of come to it? Yes, not just my stepdad having his heart attack, but other, other, other incidents as well. It does indeed. I mean, that's why I, I carry my kit with me. Um, it's on the off chance. And unfortunately, it's quite 
often that we do attend medical calls, whether it's um, car crashes are probably the most common in the police, or if we attend a call to, um, say, an, an elderly person who's fallen behind the door, we'll be called to force entry. However, the ambulance could still be some way off. Oh, sorry. That's all um, right. And... In that, in that time, it's, it's great to be able to treat them. Um, I'd hate to be in the situation of having the knowledge and the skills and having nothing, you know, no equipment with me. Um, I'd much rather be able to do something, hold the fort until the ambulance arrive with, you know, their higher skills and, you know, higher amount of equipment as well. And uh, you must go through a whole plethora of calls as a, as a, as a special constable as well. They must range Indeed. from various different things. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm one of the uh, quite lucky ones. I work um, in the rural um, district. Um, and there's quite a, a large variety of calls out there. Um, I was very lucky in the fact I could transfer my driving qualification to the police, um, which enables me to respond on blue lights to emergencies, which in a rural setting, um, we cover such vast distances, is fairly vital. Um, but, it, you know, most of the calls, I would say, aren't medical, um, and it's great to be able to use different skill sets and, and different thought processes as a police officer at that point. Um, but it's uh, a bit of a comfort, you know, if things do go the, the wrong way or, or things look a bit belly up, to be able to fall back on the medical training um, until further help arrives. Absolutely. It's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you. And thank you very much for bringing in the unit. And, and above all, from, from my own point of view and my family's point of view, to you, you and your colleagues who actually went to the Instant so thank you very much for what you did. You're most welcome. Um, because uh, without, without your hard work, my stepdad could possibly not be here now. So uh, from my own family and from me, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, are you going to be out on duty tonight? Obviously being Halloween, are you going to be uh, sort of... <laughs> uh, this <laughs> evening I'm not. Uh, tomorrow perhaps. Um, but uh, at the moment undecided. Wonderful stuff. Well, it's been interesting talking to you. That's uh, Adam Catlin from, uh, well, he's a paramedic and he's a special constable with Cambridgeshire Police as well. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to us about uh, your work as a paramedic and uh, bringing in the defibrillator unit as well. Thank you for having me. Thank no you. problem at all. Thank you. From 10 to 1. Mid mornings with Linda Ness. Thank you very much for t- taking time out for the interview. Yeah, great. I gather that you're coming to Cambridge uh, in November. Uh, that's right, yeah, 1st of November at the Corn Exchange. Yes, indeed, yeah, it's a, a show of Genesis um, uh, songs that were written between 1971 and 77. So it's really up to date. No hint of nostalgia there at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a look at the, at the, the Genesis uh, canon when I think it was at its most free. And um, uh, songs tended to be uh, often quite lengthy. Um, not all of them. Some of them were three minutes, but often they became 23 minutes long. Such was the nature of things that at that time you were allowed to do that sort of thing. Um, at that time, before the days of video and having to sort of trim things in order to fit in with um, uh, uh, playlist length. Yes, uh, the um, prog rock genre is known for its lengthy tracks. It is, yes, it is indeed, yeah. Um, I tend to think of it as a sort of pan-genre approach to things. Um, every conceivable style was used, uh, you know, from pantomime to to jazz to big band. I mean, you name it, really. Uh, there was quite a lot of humour with it. Um, it wasn't all uh, it wasn't all serious, believe me. The band that you've got playing with you in the co- at the Corn Exchange... Yeah. Could you just run through who that will be? Yes. Um, there is Roger King on keyboards, Rob Townsend on woodwinds and brass, 
Lee Pomeroy on bass and 12 string. Uh, he also works for Take That, amongst other bands. And Gary O'Toole on the drums. O'Toole, as in Peter O'Toole. Uh-huh. It was Gary. So, yeah, Gary O'Toole. And that's the band we're using on that, on that show, on that night. Right. Um, I gather you, you prefer to be a solo artist, is that right? Well, you know, I think that it's misleading. I think no one, no one is, is, no man's an island, and I'm not, I'm not really a solo artist. Um, my name's up there, but um, it's just as much about all the other people as me. And um, when I play live, it's a band feel, and, and when I make an album, like the last one, which was um, the Genesis Revisited number two, um, there were nearly 40 people on it. So um, hardly an entirely solo effort. I mean, I have made albums with nylon guitar, sometimes that are completely solo, but um, even then, it's a team comprising yourself and the engineer, at least. I I made six or seven albums with Genesis, and then um, I made um, 1,003 albums on my own, yes. Uh, do you do you ever hark back to the days of of Genesis, as in uh, the, the the period from 1970 to 77, perhaps? Um, yes, I do. And, and the show that I'm doing at the, at the Corn Exchange is a show entirely comprised of the music written during that period uh, that we wrote collectively during that time, uh, 71 to 77. So I do go back to that time very much, and I think I think the template was was a very good one, as I say the pan-genre approach where every style was welcomed, I think was um, a very he- healthy way to develop music at that time. Because we were a lot younger at that point. But I'm doing more shows than ever now, even though some of the other guys are pulling back. I'm, uh, I'm busier than ever on the road because I love touring. Do you get a kind of a buzz out of it? I do, yes. Yeah, it's, it's a great feeling um, at, at the end of it. Um, it it's, it's better than drugs, believe me. At the end of um, every night, it's people, uh, you know, really, really happy. You know, um, it's it, it's a great feeling. Um, there, there's a great buzz which lasts with me for about thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, it's a very strange thing. After a show, you can be buzzing for about an hour, and then suddenly it's as if someone pulls the, the plug, and you get, oh my god, yes, I've been, I've been standing on one leg for two and a half hours working my volume pedal with the other, and um, suddenly you fall over. But um, uh, you feel no pain when you're up there doing it. It is a great feeling. 